This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Amager here, and we are very excited to share this next Cardio Nerds Rounds recording. Cardio Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators Dr. Karin Desai from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeFest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Yvonne Chivere for their top-notch production skills that make Cardinerance Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardinerance without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Karn, take it away. Welcome back to Cardio Nerds Round. My name is Karen Desai. I'm a third year fellow here at the University of Maryland. And along with Natalie Stokes, who's a chief fellow at the University of Pittsburgh, we are your co-chairs for this series. Now, just to outline the goals of this session, we are utilizing real cases to highlight diagnostic and therapeutic pearls in management of different cardiovascular disease. And it's also a chance for all learners, from students to attending, for all of us to join together and learn cardiology. For our podcast audience, any images that we discuss here today will also be included on the website. Today, we are going to be discussing a few HEPTEP cases with some stellar faculty and fellows from Northwestern. It is my pleasure to first introduce Dr. Loi Farina. Dr. Farina did her undergrad at Duke, and then she's become a triple cat. She's done her medical school residency and suing her heart failure fellowship at Northwestern. She's also contributed to the Cardio-B series, and it is wonderful to have Dr. Farina back. So, Loie, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I am very happy to introduce Dr. Jane Wilcock. She is the Chief of Northwestern's Heart Failure Sections, the Associate Director of the T1 Center for Cardiovascular Therapeutics, and also an Associate Professor at Northwestern University's Einberg School of Medicine. She's also the Director of the Myocardial Recoveries Clinic at Northwestern and serves as Associate Editor at Circulation Heart Failure. Beyond her many academic accomplishments, she is known amongst trainees for being a master educator. I'm so fortunate to have her as a mentor. Dr. Wilcox, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Loi. It's really great to be here. And it's fun to do this with you. And we're super excited to have you as our Heart Failure Fellow next year, Heart Success Fellow next year. Without further ado, Loi, you want to take us on round? Sounds good. All right, let's round. We're going to see two patients today. I'd like to throw a shout out to Dr. Ravi Patel, who provided me with these cases. We're only seeing two patients, Loie. This seems out of... Uh... I know, it's not a difficult <laughs> number. <laughs> so our first case, this is an 85-year-old female. She has a history of HESPES, and she presents with worsening dyspnea exertion. She reports about one year of progressive shortness of breath with minimal exertion, such as while showering or while walking a half a block. She was admitted two months ago for similar symptoms and an AKI. And during that admission, she appeared euvolemic with a normal BMP. So her symptoms were attributed to deconditioning related to the pandemic, which unfortunately I think we see fairly commonly in our patients. 
She was discharged home with pulmonary and cardiology follow-up and currently has an outpatient CPES that's scheduled. However, she's now readmitted due to progressive symptoms and symptomatic hypotension. Her past medical history is notable for diacyl arteritis. She's on a prednisone paper, currently about 5 milligrams. Not obstructive coronary disease. Her last left heart cast was six years ago. She has breast cancer, status post lumpectomy, chemotherapy, and radiation. Permanent atrial fibrillation. She has had an AV nodal ablation and BRPP implantation. Asthma, DKD stage 3. Her baseline creatinine is about 1 to 1.2. She has no pertinent family history. And in terms of her social history, she's a never smoker and drinks about one glass of wine per week. Her current outpatient cardiac medications include lisinopril 10 milligrams daily, simvastatin 20 milligrams daily, birotolactone 25 milligrams daily, warfarin 2 milligrams daily. And she was previously on barosamide 20 milligrams, but this was recently discontinued because of lightheadedness and an AKI. So her initial labs are notable for a sodium of 134 with a potassium of 5. Her bicarb is 21. Her BUN is 46. And her creatinine is 1.68. Again, her baseline is about 1 to 1.2. Her CBC is unremarkable. And her BMP is 35 with a high sensitivity troponin of 10, which are both within normal limits. So at this point, she is admitted and her lisinopril is held because of her AKI as well as low normal blood pressures. She has an echocardiogram that's performed, and this shows that her LV is normal in size. She has no LVH. Her systolic function is low normal, about an EF of 50%, and her RV is normal in size with mildly decreased systolic function. Her left atrium is severely enlarged, and her right atrium is mildly dilated. She has mild mitral regurgitation. Looking at her diastolic function, she has an elevated E weight velocity at 1.4 meters per second. She does not have an A wave because of her underlying permanent atrial fibrillation. And her tissue Doppler shows low velocities. Her lateral E prime is 0.05 meters per second. And this translates to an E over E prime ratio of more than 20. So the first thing is, you told me this lady's short of breath was showering. So she's really sick. She's 85, and that's not something to take lightly. You know, what's her baseline functional status? But a really important question when we go see her is going to be, hey, what were you doing six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago, kind of like pre-pandemic? Were you out shopping? Were you out doing your own errands? Or was this just sort of progressive decline? So she's really kind of class, what would you say, 3B or ambulatory class four? Yeah, I'd say at least three. Yeah, and three is such a huge class. She's barely able to do her activities in daily living. The second thing is her past medical history. So she's got a lot of stuff in there, right? She's got this AFib with the pacemaker. So is something going on there? We should interrogate that for sure. Is she having more burden of AFib? She also has this history of radiation. Does she have radiation heart disease? Does she's got a restrictive cardiomyopathy component? And then the other thing you told me, which is, I think you and I recently saw a patient like this, or maybe it was, I don't know if you were on service, but she has this giant cell arteritis. And so she's being treated with prednisone. You told me her E to E prime was greater than 20 and she's coming in. Her sodium's 134. We haven't gone through a little bit of her physical exam, but is she volume overloaded? Because she's actually just retaining volume with the recent prednisone. And then her Lasix was discontinued and we gave her a corticosteroid that's going to cause her volume retention. So that might be the trigger for her recent hospitalization. There's a lot in that history that we could think about and set a framework before we even go and see her. The other thing I wanted to mention was this diagnosis of asthma. I always say this on rounds too, is the only question you're allowed to ask is when were you diagnosed? <laughs> and if they say childhood, then you say, okay, fine. And then you move on. 
But if they say age 55 or age 70, adult onset asthma, is that a thing? No, it's like pulmonary process, but it's usually not adult onset asthma. And so I always say, be very leery of the patient who was diagnosed in their 60s and 70s with new onset asthma. That's probably heart failure. And then the final point that I wanted to make, Lori, was, and you did a great job of this, when you go back and look at her echo, reviewing the primary data yourself is so important. When we're on rounds and the students are pulling up or they're telling me about the echo, it's like, no, 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 let's just pull up the images. Let's look at it ourselves because we're seeing the patient in front of us and then we can kind of see the window into her world, right, of what her heart muscle function is actually looking like. So if you go back to that echo, her ventricle is not enlarged, maybe low normal function. What we're looking at here is this apical four chamber and then the two chamber. Her left atrium, it's gigundus, ginormous. Which, <laughs> ginormous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a technical term. It's literally bigger than her LV. So this has been going on for a long time. She absolutely has hef-pef. Does she have something else going on? We see biatrial enlargement, but the left is bigger than the right. And like you said, she's got relatively preserved RV function. So really important findings on her echo. And then the next slide, you showed us her tissue Doppler. And here, her E-wave velocity is super high. She's fused because she has AFib. But then this E to E prime is elevated. So it's greater than 20. She's got elevated LVEDP, left-sided filling pressures based on this information. And then the tissue Doppler, do you think she has the 555 slide? Yeah, her S prime looks like it's less than five. Her E prime certainly five or less as well. Yeah. So anytime you see this 555 where everything is less than five, your antenna should be going up of, is this an infiltrative cardiomyopathy? Does she have amyloid? Is this a radiation heart disease? The health of her myocardium is not good at all. And so I'll be interested to see if we did strain in this case. But those are my initial thoughts as we frame this case. I think what probably throws people off the scent a lot of times is that she doesn't have LVH. How do you take those two together? I know that the absence of LVH doesn't rule out amyloid, but it seems to make it less likely, perhaps. Yeah, her echo for sure is not the classic amyloid. Like, you know, you've been slapped in the face with this sparkly myocardium and she's got just huge septal and lateral wall thickness. But you've got to start somewhere, too. I can't tell you how many amyloid diagnoses I've made in the outpatient setting where the tissue Doppler kind of tips you off, the age, the biatrial enlargement, and then obviously strain. We can look for that classic cherry on top pattern. But you really want to bird dog everything down, right? Because I think we'll get into her invasive hemodynamics, but I often will get a cardiac MR in these folks to really see is there presence of macroscopic or microscopic fibrosis. Is there nulling of the myocardium, right? That can tip you off to amyloid. Obviously, a PYP, that would be the next step. Also, we didn't look at her EKG, Lloyd. She's in permanent atrial fibrillation with IV pacing. No, like pseudo-infarct pattern or super low volts or anything? No, not on her EKG. Yeah. I think you have to think about it. I think you're right that she doesn't really have LVH, and so it's probably not amyloid. But if we don't think about it and we don't say it out loud, you'll miss it. Absolutely, for sure. Kind of going back, we didn't really go through her exam in detail, but her volume status looked really challenging to assess. I think that at that point in time, people did not think that she was particularly volume overloaded. Her BMP also probably threw people off the sense a little bit and her low blood pressure with this AKI, I think that people were not really entirely sure. Although her echo would suggest that she's volume overloaded, I think her exam did not really suggest that. At least it wasn't the parent. Yeah. Well, to be clear, though, too, her echo shows elevated left-sided filling pressures, which could be pressure, not necessarily volume. But you're right. It can be really tricky. You spend a whole year with us examining the Janie P. <laughs> so you'll do that next year. It'll be great. My family calls me a vampire. 
But a nice trick on rounds is to really check for that Kusval sign as well. And so I'll have patients turn their head and then I raise my hand slowly and have them take a slow, deep breath. So we can really watch to see if the jugular venous pressure goes up with inspiration, right? Because normally there's negative intrathoracic pressure that JVP should go down as you're filling the right side of the heart. And the classic teaching is that you'll see Kusmals in what condition is it? Rhymes with Mampanad. Tamponade. Tamponade. We got it. Yes. Yeah, so classically, you'll see it in tamponade, but really we see it all the time in HFPAS and it's really that health of the right ventricle. So what that right ventricle looks like. And with her tissue doppler the way it is, I imagine that her right ventricle is not that healthy as well. And so we may have seen a Kusval's on exam too. All right. So she ends up getting a right heart catheterization. I think because of the fact that her exam was challenging and they decided to proceed with a exercise right heart catheterization. So this is done by the right IJ. She's actually hypertensive at the time of the study, although, again, she's in mostly low normal blood pressures while she's in an inpatient. Her resting hemodynamics, her RA pressure is 12. Her RV pressure is 58 over 8 with a CDP of 10. PA, 52 over 20 with a mean of 36. Her wedge is 24 with B waves to 50. And her cardiac output by thermodilution is 4.4 and by FIC, it's 2.56. Wow. Okay. So what do we think about this? I think, number one, it's interesting that she's hypertensive now. <laughs> yeah. Just withholding her lisinopril. So like maybe that wasn't the best treatment for her, I guess, to start with. Her RA pressure, like we said, is really your volume status. So is the patient overloaded? 12, sitting upright, remember, that's going to be your clavicle. It's going to be at 10. So if she's sitting upright, we're really only going to see her JVP. We'll see it. It'll be elevated by a few centimeters of water there, but not super elevated. This isn't 20. But the thing that most strikes me here is this wedge pressure with the V waves. And when you see a large V wave, the first thing I want to do is go back to the echo and look for what? She has that mitral regurgitation. Yeah, for sure. You did a great job at describing that to start with, where she doesn't really have severe MR. She's got restricted filling. And so this V wave to 50 is probably more evident of left atrial compliance, which is going to be high or low. Low compliance. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Super low. <laughs> Yeah. So she's just got a super stiff heart, super stiff left atrium. And I imagine with exercise, these pressures are going to go up. And what about her cardiac output here? Pretty marginal. I mean, I think it depends on whether you go by thermodilution or FIC, but certainly by FIC, it's reduced. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary low. I mean, cardiac output of 2.6 here, her index is 1.4. And so you told me earlier that her ejection fraction was low normal, right? So I love this teaching point too, where ejection fraction does not equal cardiac output. So cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. So her stroke volume here is pretty darn low, probably again, because of this sort of restrictive HEFPEF physiology. And patients in HEFPEF can be in cardiogenic shock too. This is a very low index. And so she's allowed to bump a lactate. She's allowed to go into shock with a normal ejection fraction. So I think that's a key point too. And a blood pressure that's 160. So it's not necessarily hypotension as well. So lots of interesting stuff here. Yeah, absolutely. So the next thing that they do is just a leg raise pre-exercise. And at this point, her PA pressure goes up to 72 over 36 with a mean of 50. Again, we are starting with a mean of 36 pre-leg raise. Her wife goes up to 38 and Z waves up to 60. And then her cardiac index by thermodilution goes down to 1.98. So it was 2.3 pre-leg raise. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So she's allowed to be symptomatic here. I mean, holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense why she's NYHA 3 plus. 
Yeah, three B, almost four here. I mean, her lungs are seeing a B wave of sixty. This is bananas. So yeah. we got some work to do, for sure. So she does exercise because they're all set up for it, even though she has pressing elevated pressures. And with exercise, her PA pressure is seventy two over thirty three with a mean of fifty. Her wedge again is forty five with B waves to sixty, and her index does go up like seven nine. So it does go up with exercise. Yeah. So I think that brings us to our first poll question. What would you do next at this point with this data? Start IV diuresis, given her elevated right atrial and wedge pressure at rest. Start an oral diuretic and continue her spironolactone and discharge her home with close follow-up. Start an oral diuretic, resume lisinopril and continue spironolactone. Discharge home with close follow-up. Start an oral diuretic and FGLP2 inhibitor prior to discharge. Or start an oral diuretic and an ARNI prior to discharge. Or would you do something else? Yeah, Lily, that was fantastic. And we'll give our audience here a little bit of time to answer some questions. It seems like the majority of people would say they would start IV diuresis given the elevated RA and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure at rest. The next most common answer was start an oral diuretic and SDL2 inhibitor prior to discharge. But you guys do not want to hear from me. Let's hear from the experts. So Dr. Glowcox, what would you do? I love this question because I think this is a really key point. So remember that when you're doing a right heart catheterization, we're measuring this in millimeters of mercury. The only way when we're doing a right heart catheterization that we have to sort of estimate volume is pressure. So pressure is a surrogate for volume. Elevated volume is our assessment on exam. And Lowy told us that she wasn't particularly volume overloaded. I don't remember if she had a bunch of lower extremity edema or not. But this woman has a right atrial pressure of 12 in the setting of a systemic blood pressure of 160. So I'm more interested in what happens to her right atrial pressure if I actually controlled her blood pressure. And does her wedge pressure come down? And as such, maybe her right atrial pressure might come down. So while I'm a heart failure doctor, and so I'll never say IV diuresis is wrong, I think everybody can get a little bit of IV Lasix and feel better. I don't see these numbers and think, yep, we need to slam her with IV diuretics. We absolutely need to reduce a little bit of congestion, but I would focus on figuring out what her hemodynamics are when she's normotensive and then starting her on disease-modifying therapy. And then remember, she had this recent AKI. So for me, I would resume her oral diuresis. I would absolutely try to get that MRA back on board because that's going to help with that right-sided congestion, that right-sided health of the myocardium. And then absolutely, she needs close follow-up. And one might argue that she might be a really ideal candidate for PA pressure monitoring. In the CHAMPION trial and recent GUIDE trial, when we looked at PA pressure monitoring, HEFPEF actually, these patients benefited perhaps a bit more than patients with reduced ejection fraction. So I absolutely would do oral diuretic and the MRA and then SGLT2 inhibitor hopefully would be a game changer for her down the line. And I think with her history of hypotension, I might not do Arnie right away. She's 85 and the last thing she needs to do is have a fall and break her hip. And then all of this is for naught. So I would do this in a really phased approach, a little bit of trial and error and seeing what we can do to make her feel better. So that's how I would approach her. Louie, what did we do? <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there. She was started on oral diuresis and she was continued on her spironolactone. Her lisinopril was resumed before discharge, along with her spiral lactam because her AKI resolved. We started on oral diuresis and then discharged home with close follow-up. So her first intervention for her was basically resuming oral diuretics. And getting her blood pressure under better control since clearly it wasn't controlled with holding her antihypertensive with her ACE. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
At her first follow-up visit, though, she is started on Ibuprofen, 10 milligrams daily. And at that point, given the fact that she has such a tenuous volume status, they decided to temporarily hold her furosemide. I'd be interested in your approach in terms of adding on an SGLT2 when someone's already on a diuretic. And then she is reevaluated several weeks later, and she's actually feeling significantly improved. But she does require her furosemide to be restarted. And then three months later, she started on a low-dose Arnie, a cubitopalpartin. So a few questions I have for you are how you manage diuretics in someone in the SGLT2, and then the role of the ARNI in this case. Are there certain patient populations that you think about it more in someone who has had meth? Yeah, awesome. Great questions. So I love that they started DAPA in her. I mean, there's great evidence. We actually have a drug now for HEFPEP, right? So it's exciting. And when I'm starting patients who aren't super volume overloaded and I'm starting an SGLT2, I will often cut their diuretic down at least by half. I think she was on 40, so I might have cut her down to 20, but she's 85 and I think it's fine to hold it and just have really close follow-up. Again, if we did have a PA pressure monitor, we would be able to really dial that in nicely. So number one, unless the patient is also overloaded, I will reduce diuretics by about 50%. So that I totally agree with. The Arnie, I think, is really interesting. And I absolutely would start an Arnie in her. And I might have even done it a little bit earlier. I think you're going to get a little bit of diuresis, right, from the succubitrol aspect of it at the neprilysin inhibition. We talk about clinical trial data, but also in real life data. I've started this in my women with low normal ejection fraction and have seen really positive results as well. So in the pooled analysis from Paradigm and Paragon, when we looked at sex-specific response to the RNA compound, it looked like women achieved greater benefit at higher ejection fractions. So the line of unity crosses much higher in women than it does in men. And I think that number was right around 60. So we looked at her EF. Her EF is not snappy here by any means. And so I think that's probably why she did well on Sucubitril Valsartan. So this is a great case, Loie, because we started two disease-modifying medicines for her and she's feeling better. Yep, absolutely. So just to kind of summarize the medicines that she has are furosemide, the SGLT2 inhibitor, spironolactone, and succubitrovalfartin. Yeah, actually, she's on three medicines. So if we think about TopCat in the Americas, spironolactone was really beneficial. And a lot of times I'll push the spiro up to 50, 75 milligrams really to get a little bit more diuretic effect, but I don't necessarily think we need that in her. Lily, this was fantastic. And Dr. Wilcox, that was a fantastic discussion. You know, one of the questions that came in was from Calvin Lee, who's actually one of my co-fellows here at the University of Maryland. How do you use PA pressure monitoring in this patient? So you've had elevated PA pressures at baseline, but we don't necessarily think it reflects the volume status consistently for the patient. Yeah, that's a good question. So the way that the question was phrased, I would change that a little bit. We have our clinical examination for volume. And like I said, pressure is a surrogate for volume. But still, if the PA pressures are going up and they're not becoming more hypertensive, then we can assume that may be volume related. So the way I would use it is as I'm adding these therapies, am I actually seeing that PA mean or PA diastolic pressure come down indicative of dropping that LVEDP pressure, right? So all of this is sort of from her elevated left side feeling pressures and atrial dysfunction. Are we seeing a drop in that PA pressure that is as a result of our disease-modifying therapies? And then this is a lovely case that Loie presented, right? She's feeling better and everything we did was great. But a lot of times that's not the real world. I mean, this was a great case because she responded favorably to both medicines. 
But a lot of what we do in clinic and particularly HEFPEF clinic is trial and error. We're like, hey, let's try this. Oh, gosh, you got a genital mycotic infection. All right, we're going to stop dipagliflozin. Or they don't feel as well. And we don't know if they don't feel as well because their pressures are elevated or down or if it's totally unrelated. So I just try to get as much data as I can in this population and work with the patient together. It gives patients a little bit of ownership. They feel like they might have a little control over their disease process. So getting as much data as we can that doesn't overwhelm patients, but empowers patients is how I use that. Yeah, that's fantastic, Dr. Wilcox. And we do have one more patient waiting for us here on round. Are we running late? No, no, not at all. This is round. Round all over the place. So I do want to ask one more question. I see the questions coming in the chat as well, and we'll get to them at the end. But when we were starting to prepare for these rounds, Lowy shared a perspective piece from Northwestern, from Ravi Patel and Sanjeev Shah, regarding the atrial myopathy or the atrial myopathy phenotypes of HEFTA. And a lot of what we're hearing from this patient may be that. Do they have some issue with reservoir function, conduit? Clearly, the contractile function has been reduced because they're in atrial fibrillation. And is there something specific about managing these atrial myopathy HEPTA patients that we should keep in mind? And one of the things that I noticed right away was that this was someone that developed lightheadedness on a low-dose diuretic early in her case. So any pearls of wisdom you would share for those kind of patients with phenotype? Uh, they're really hard, I guess. <laughs> the basic message is the atrial myopathy patient is really difficult. But I always try to go after targets. So is there a burden of ATIP going up? If they've got an AV nodal ablation and CRT, are we CRT pacing them less? I think being a little bit hesitant to overdiurese these patients because it's more of that atrial function as opposed to just frank volume overload. She didn't come in like 80 pounds up and she needed a Bumex strip for four days. Her lungs are seeing this elevated filling pressures from this atrial myopathy. And so we can get a little bit over aggressive and just try to slam people with diuretics without kind of getting that whole picture. I think there's a question in the chat that kind of speaks to that as well about we usually expect the BNP to be high and her BNP was normal. And I think that threw people off. So remember in garden variety, half puff and particularly women in half puff, we sometimes see this BNP deficiency phenomenon where there's a relative deficiency of natriuretic peptides. And that's what leads to more symptoms. And so I would really caution you to, you know, we hold stock in the BNP with regard to following people in trajectory if it's elevated. But if the BNP is elevated, but not super elevated, that doesn't rule out elevated filling pressures or atrial myopathy by any means. Yeah, that was fantastic, Dr. Wilcox. And like I mentioned, we got to get Dr. Lowy Farina here back on the hot seat with one more patient. So in our last 20 minutes here, Dr. Farina, can you give us the story of Miss B? Absolutely. So now we're going to be seeing a patient in clinic. This is a 74-year-old female. She has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and COPD. She's coming in for evaluation of dyscean exertion. She reports two years of progressive dyscean light exertion. She was short of breath just walking from the waiting room to the exam room and is short of breath doing her ordinary housework. She has chronic stable lower extremity swelling for which she wears compression stockings and notes occasional lightheadedness associated with positional changes. No chest pain, orthopnea, PND, or palpitations. Her past medical history, I mentioned the hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and COPD. She has a mild obstructive defect on TFTs. Obesity, her BMI is 37, and recurrent DVTs. Her mother has DAD, and in terms of her social history, she's a former very light smoker, four-pack year history. She quit over 30 years ago, and she does not drink any alcohol. 
For current medications, she's on a fixed band, lisinopril, HCPV, 2012.5 daily. She's on lisuvastatin 5 daily, and then she's on a few non-cardiac medications, PPI, levothyroxine, and some inhalers. Pertinent exam finding, her heart rate is 53. Her blood pressure is 131 over 83. She's satting well on room air. She does not have any jugular venous distension. Her lungs are clear. Regular rate and rhythm without any murmur, and she does not have any notable peripheral edema. Her recent lab results are reviewed, and her chemistry as well as her CDC are both unremarkable. Her sodium is within normal limits. The bicarbonate, I suppose, is a little bit high at 30, and her creatinine is normal at 0.82. She also has a normal BNP at 50, and her high sensitivity troponin is 3. And then a recent A1C was 6.1%. Going to her EKG, this shows sinus bradycardia, and she has minimal voltage criteria for LVH but otherwise fairly unremarkable. Her echo. So this shows a left ventricle that's normal in size. She has no LVH and her systolic function is normal with an EF of 65%. Her RV is also normal in size and function. The estimated RV systolic pressure is 23. Her left atrial size is mildly enlarged. Her diastology, her E-wave is 0.59. Her EA ratio is 0.47, so that's low. Her deceleration time is 389, which is prolonged. Her tissue Doppler, her lateral E prime is 7.5. Her septal E prime is 4. And that's an E over E prime ratio of 10. So this is interpreted as consistent with grade 1 diastolic dysfunction. Her IVC is collapsible. And so her RA pressure is estimated at 3. And then finally, she has strain performed. And her global longitudinal strain is totally normal, beautiful red color everywhere. And it's minus 21%. So that actually brings us to our first poll question. What would you do next? Diastolic stress test, right heart catheterization with exercise, an ischemic evaluation with stress testing, jumping right to the left heart catheterization, referred for a sleep study, or would you just say, let's just start some therapy for this patient, spironolactone, or start an SGLT2 inhibitor, or would you do something else? So thanks, Lily. And, you know, this is not an unkind presentation. This is probably a patient that we all see whether you're a medical student rounding with your clinic preceptors or your resident, fellow, attending. This is a very common patient. So Dr. Wilcox, what would you do next year? So this is a great case because it's very subtle, right? This isn't a slam dunk of someone who's super overloaded in clinic. The echo, there aren't that many abnormalities. I mean, there's some grade one diastolic dysfunction, but she's got normal filling pressures. We rarely see normal global longitudinal strain. One thing that I thought was really interesting just for the audience to kind of highlight this on her echo, which we definitely want to review primary data, review the data yourself, that pearl that you should come home with. I personally, I'm curious about coronary disease in her. She doesn't have a lot of evidence of really bad diastology, at least at rest. What happens with exercise would be really curious, but also garden variety coronary artery disease. We need to rule out. So I guess I would do probably, you know, you guys selected right heart cath with exercise and ischemic evaluation. I would start with the ischemic evaluation. I would talk with her about shared decision making. We could do invasive testing versus non-invasive testing. If we really want to know, I would probably do an angiogram and I would do a right heart cath at the same time. But let's see, Loie, what happened here? What did we decide to do? He has a nuclear stress test that showed a small area of myocardial tina in the RCA territory and borderline EKG changes. They also, because of this lightheadedness that she's been complaining of, she ends up having a Holter monitor and 
it's honestly fairly unrevealing. She has no positive, no AV block, rare ectopy. She had one episode of SVT lasting eight seats and one episode of VT lasting five seats. And her symptomatic episodes were mostly sinus rhythm with occasional isolated supraventricular ectopathies and then some episodes of junctional rhythm. So based on this, because of the abnormal nuclear stress, they do decide to proceed to left heart catheterization. Okay. And Loie, this is interesting because her echo was done and her heart rate was 46. That was another point I wanted to make. I think the Holter was a great idea here to make sure she wasn't having any block. Absolutely. She just has mild non-obstructive disease. Her left main is angiographically normal. For LAD, there's a mid-20% tubular lesion. The circ is angiographically normal. And then the RCA, there's a mid-20% diffuse lesion. They do measure an LVEDP. They don't do a full right heart catheterization, but her LVEDP is 20. And that's at a blood pressure of 136 over 70. So pearl number 76, always do a right heart catheterization. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's a heart failure factor. I know, right? A right is never wrong. <laughs> so at this point, we do have another poll question. And afterwards, we'll be interested to hear from Dr. Wilcox if we feel like we have an answer here and so we know what's going on. But how would we approach the initial therapy for her? Should we increase her antihypertensive for improved blood pressure control? Start her on spironolactone? Start her on an SGLT2 inhibitor? Start a loop diuretic or other? Yeah. One of the comments from the chat was, needs a right heart death. Absolutely. So, you know, a little bit of that is in jest, but I think it's useful if you're not really sure kind of what to do. I personally would probably start both spironolactone and an SGLT2 inhibitor in this patient. We have a known proven therapy now for patients with HEFPEF, and I've seen personally amazing results clinically in a short amount of time. And some of that may be due to a little bit of the diuretic effect, but I think I absolutely would start her on SGLT2 inhibitor. And probably also start Spiro. I can't remember what her baseline labs looked like, but I think she's got room to start Spiro. Did have hyperkalemia, right, Loie? No. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have enough information to say we think that this is half cuff in her? Is the elevated LVDP alone in the setting of some evidence of diastolic dysfunction on echo? Is that enough for you to feel confident and say this is most likely what this is? Yeah, that's a great point, Loie. We're seeing her in clinic, right? So again, a lot of this is, it's not like, this is what you have and come back to me, I've cured you. A lot of this is trial and error. A lot of this is working with the patient, having them come back in two weeks and see your APP or talking to your nurse or doing a telehealth visit. These are resource intensive patients. As we're thinking about other things, I'd probably start the SGLT2 and just see, does she feel better? Her EDP is 20. So she's definitely got some abnormal diastology there and maybe she'll feel better. And if she doesn't feel better, then maybe we get a CPET for her. She has this diagnosis of COPD, but doesn't really have a long history of smoking. So that's where I might do more diagnostic things. We used to sort of do like, we're going to do all the diagnostic workup, and then we're going to find out exactly what it is. And then we're going to start the appropriate therapy. And in reality, a lot of this is a little iterative. We do it a little bit trial and error as we go along. Because the last thing I want to do is have this patient feel worse for longer. If I can start a therapy where the side effects are minimal, she'll probably respond and we can move on with our rounds. <laughs> Sounds good. So, and not surprisingly, she started on perosamide 20 milligrams daily, but she doesn't really improve. Her leg swelling gets better, but she doesn't have any improvements in her shortness of breath. But then she's seen for reevaluation and she has started on empagliflozin 10 milligrams. And at her PCP follow-up, two weeks later, she's noting improvement in her dyspnea exertion. Interesting. 
We didn't talk about this, Louie, but prescribing exercise and prescribing movement and keeping a journal. How are you feeling when you do things? I'll do that a lot with my patients as well. Let me know what your activity level is like and how you're feeling with that. We also have remote patient monitoring clinic where patients will get their blood pressure. They fill out some surveys or information and then that's sent to our clinic. So we can, again, couple that with objective data. We didn't chat about that, but that's something that we should also prescribe for her. Absolutely. Yeah, Dr. Wilcox, that's a really great point. And one of the questions that I had as this case was being presented was, how do we utilize things like HEPCEP score to help to differentiate patients with dyspnea in determining if someone has HEPCEP? Do you utilize something like that in your practice? Yeah, we use the H2PEP score. That's a diagnostic that helps us with our diagnosis. It wasn't designed to be a prognostic indicator. I'm just a fan of getting as much data as we can from multiple angles. So what happens with exercise? So we have this halter in her. I mean, parts of her myocardium are unhealthy. Her strain was normal on her echo, but she's got some diastolic dysfunction. She's got some left atrial enlargement and she's got dyspnea on exertion. And she also has a history of hypertension. So her scores in her age, she's going to at least be moderate. And then we see that her LVEDP is elevated as well. So the diagnosis part of it, we definitely would utilize scores to help with that. In terms of response to therapy, we don't have great data yet on your score was this. And so you are therefore going to respond in this manner with this drug. It's not personalized to that aspect. And in fact, we're not that personalized with reduced ejection fraction heart failure or recovered ejection fraction heart failure either. So a lot of this is iterative. But going back to my point about getting as much data as we can and not just myocardial data, but exercise data. I may have even done the Holter. I may have even just done a stress test to sort of see what happens. Does she have chronotropic response because of that baseline bradycardia? And I've made that diagnosis multiple times where there's just lack of chronotropic response. And if we address that, that could improve her symptoms as well. Another question that comes up is, you mentioned you may have started the SGL2 inhibitor and spironolactone up front. And your patients that you see with HEPTEF, when do you consider starting those kind of medications up front over a loop diuretic when they're demonstrating volume overload, either by exam or invasive hemodynamics? Yeah, I mean, you want to treat congestion any way you can, but you really want to get them on disease-modifying therapy. So diuretics don't improve survival. They improve symptoms. They don't improve rehospitalization. So we want to get them on the disease-modifying therapy first and foremost. And if they're still congested, absolutely treat their congestion with diuretics. We always talk about the HEFPEF polypill. I mean, mine would be an SGLT2, a low-dose ARNI, probably a little bit of Bumex and spironolactone. And then if the patient still has symptoms or they're hypertensive, we might add more things. But treating congestion, but getting them on that disease-modifying therapy has to be our primary focus. This has been a jam-packed hour with a whole bunch of pearls. I want to first thank Dr. Lully Farina. She presented some cases beautifully, answered the questions in the hot seat beautifully, and really, really gave us some great context to learn some of the pearls that you, Dr. Wilcox, gave us here. And I think many of us will then take and apply to practice. So thank you so much to the both of you for joining us here today. And we will see all of you next time.